Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. October 10 edition of the PFT PM Podcast. We're going to have a conversation with Jets quarterback Josh McCown coming up later in this PFTPM podcast. Spoke to him Tuesday morning, and it's football only, Jets only. This anthem issue wasn't discussed with Josh. I don't want to bog down interviews with it unless I have to, or unless I see a way to advance the ball. Sense that we're going to get some sort of insight different than the opinions, the conflicting opinions that are already out there. I'm in a weird spot, and I've been in a weird spot for two weeks now, because at about that point, and let's say it was two weeks ago, just for ease of reference, because I can't remember which day it was after the week three games, which felt like a dramatically different day in NFL history, given the rash of new protests during the anthem, most of which were directed at the president for essentially challenging the players to kneel or sit during the anthem. I got to a point where I only wanted to talk about it if there was something new. And I told the producers of PFT Live, I'm not talking about it unless there's something new. I told the folks who work with me at PFT, let's not write anything unless there's something new. People don't want to constantly rehash this issue. They want to focus on football. But at the same time, when there is something new, it's worth discussing. You have to discuss it. You have to cover it. They tell us stick to sports. The problem is politics has now injected itself into sports. And so many people tell me and email and tweet, don't talk about politics. Well, politics came into our backyard. We didn't gratuitously show up in the backyard of politics. Politics decided to co-op this issue. Oh, and by the way, politics is winning. Because here's where I think we are right now based upon recent developments. And this is in the aftermath of Sunday, a far more momentous day in the history of this controversy than I think we recognize. We're at a point now where one NFL owner has said very clearly and very strongly that he will bench any player who disrespects the flag. And that means not standing for the national anthem. The NFL, very sheepishly, via spokesman Joe Lockhart, said during a Tuesday media briefing, that the language of the rule is what it is. It says should. He wouldn't even come out and say the rule does not require standing. But the message was, between the lines, and I wish they transcribed these press briefings, the message was the rule doesn't require standing. And next week when the owners get together, the rule could change. See, I don't think it was an accident Jerry Jones said what he said when he said it. He said it after the team's last game before a bye week. Their bye week is this weekend, and the owners meet for their quarterly October meeting next week, next Tuesday. So that's now the top item on the agenda. Lockhart made that clear on Tuesday. 
So here's where this stands. Next week, it's entirely possible the owners will decide to change the rule currently appearing in the game operations manual that says players must be on the sideline for the anthem and should stand. See, this is, and I remember the day in law school when we went over how to properly interpret and apply a statute, a law on the books, an act of Congress, or a law passed in a state. May and shall are the two key words. Anytime it says may, it means it's optional. Anytime it says shall, it ain't optional. And also, that was more along the lines, I'm forgetting this, it was along the lines of interpreting rules of procedure, not interpreting statutes. Sorry, it's been a while. There are rules of procedure that are basically like the rules on the inside of the cover of a board game, if anyone out there knows what a board game is. And you parse through those and understand what you can and can't do by looking for words like may and shall. Shall means you better damn do it. May means you can do it or you don't have to do it, whether it's you, whether it's the judge, whether it's whoever. So in this rule, must and should are the corollaries to shall and may. You must be on the sideline. You should be standing. And the interpretation all along has been players don't have to stand. Players don't have to stand. There's no rule requiring them to stand. That was the league's position from the get-go. And see, what happened was the league just let this thing kind of linger. It never really was a crisis. It never reached Ray Rice levels until a couple of weeks ago. It never was something that the NFL felt in a box or in a corner over. Well, now see, the league feels like it's in a corner. And even though the commissioner has not been approaching this problem by telling people what to do, because typically that's how he's led, that's how he's governed, that's how he's commissioned during his 11 years on the job, I feel like we're edging toward that based upon the memo that was given to teams and released publicly. A lot of the memos that are sent to teams aren't publicly released. They're leaked, but they're not publicly released. They want the public to know this. See, here's what's happening. This is morphing into a PR issue. And the NFL is staking out which way is the right way to go from a PR perspective. And this has been around long enough for the NFL to believe. This is what I currently predict. The NFL now believes that its safest path is to tell the players they have to stand and at the same time offer the players an alternative mechanism for voicing whatever concerns they have, specifically in the areas of racial equality, social justice, the issues that gave rise to the initial protests during the anthem in the first place. Now, should something like this have happened 14 months ago? I don't know. It never reached full boil. The best approach would have been to engineer this as the solution before it ever reached full boil. Pure, true leadership would have resulted in that approach, in my opinion. And we've advocated for that. After the Browns showed a video, a unity video, not really a unity video, it was a social justice, racial equality video with a mashup of players expressing their concerns before the week one home game against the Steelers, I thought, hey, the Browns have discovered plutonium by accident. And every team should do this or something like this. And it went nowhere. 
because the league was unwilling to tell teams what they had to do. And it was unwilling at that point to tell players what their options were. They just let it continue to simmer. Then it exploded. And after it exploded, right, and the president called out the league collectively, it brought everyone together because how dare you was the reaction. Stay out of our business. Stick to not sports. And different teams had different ways of expressing their views on that. It was a team-by-team type of an analysis. So, then, after that weekend, you had people like Jerry Jones who thought, okay, this all goes away now. People are going to stand for the anthem, and guys have this out of their system, and everything's fine. No, no. And that's what I've been saying for the last two weeks. The problem needs to be resolved. They have to find a permanent solution, which goes back to the thing, the best solution. Some other platform during the game that allows players an opportunity to express their concerns. Now, here's what's going to happen. Instead of engineering that behind the scenes, and maybe they've tried, maybe they can't. Not from the standpoint of it's not possible. Maybe the skills of the commissioner aren't conducive to leading by building a subtle consensus and leading the horse to water. The commissioner's leadership style has been take the horse's head and jam it into the lake. And I think that's where this is going. And this isn't necessarily criticism. Maybe it is. It's just an observation based upon studying the NFL very closely during the entirety of the commissioner's tenure and trying to estimate and predict where it's going to go from here. Here's where it's going to go. They're going to lead the horse to water and they're going to jam its head into the lake. Because here's the deal. And this is really the flashpoint. If you change the rule without bargaining with the union, and this is going to be the legal question for all the lawyers out there and all the lawyers who play lawyers on TV, non-lawyers who play whatever the hell I'm trying to say, mandatory subject of bargaining is the term of art. Is this a mandatory subject of bargaining? Is this a term of employment so close to the heart of the relationship that it requires the league to sit across the table and say to the players, we propose changing the rules. We propose changing should to must in the game operations manual. What say you? And what the players would say is, what's in it for us? Why should we agree to this? And that may seem mercenary, but you know what? Every time there's a complaint about something with the relationship between management and labor that hurts the players, the commissioner's power, for example, under the conduct policy, most of the media, most of the fans say, well, NFLPA did a bad deal. If they don't like it, they need to go do a better deal. Well, that's exactly what you say now to the NFL. Hey, guys, you did a bad deal. In your effort to turn the players into props as part of your desire to wrap yourself in the flag and curry favor with the military. Remember all those stories about how much money they were getting for the military displays and, you know, the whole concept of football and military and flag and nationalism. It's all tied up together. It's the National Football League and the shield is red, white, and blue. When you do that, 
and you take the players out of the locker room for the anthem and you put them on the sideline and you clumsily write a rule, that's the deal you've made for yourself. That's where we are. And there's nothing in the collective bargaining agreement about it at all. So if they try to change it, if they try to change that rule, and think about it, what's the consequence if you don't, according to Jerry Jones, if you don't stand, you don't play. I would tend to think that's a fairly big deal. Whatever the rule is, however irrelevant to the employment relationship it may seem on the surface, if the consequence is you don't play, if you don't comply, I would tend to think, without researching what is and isn't a mandatory subject of bargaining in a labor negotiation setting, I would tend to think that's fairly important. I I would tend to come to the conclusion, if you're going to not let a guy do his job over it, it's probably something that needs to be bargained. But here's the thing. It's now become a PR issue. So from the league's perspective, think about all of the heavy-handed suspensions and punishments that have been levied by the league over the past five years. Tom Brady with his four-game suspension. Ezekiel Elliott with his six-game suspension. The league has decided it's better to seem tough even if you lose in court. So I think they've decided, finally, that the only way out of this corn maze that helps the NFL or minimizes the damage is to say, enough is enough. Here's a separate platform to communicate your concerns. You will stand for the anthem, period. And if the NFL Players Association doesn't like it, do something about it. I don't care. We, the NFL, are telling you, the players, that you will stand. That gets the president and the president's supporters outside of the internal areas of the NFL's rectum. Pardon the graphic. It could have been worse. Trust me. What was in my head was worse than what I said. Not that that makes it any better. This is the way to get out of this mess. Because now, the ball is in the NFL Players Association's court. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to take the NFL to court? Are you going to push this unpopular argument that it's okay to kneel or sit for the anthem? Hey, NFLPA, here, you take it. We're done with it. Here you go. Here's the hot potato. We've been juggling the damn thing long enough. You take it. And you do the unpopular thing because we're going to sit back and we're going to say, we have the players stand for the anthem. President Trump, get out of our ass. That's the strategy. And you know what? If the courts say that the NFL is wrong, the NFL can say, hey, President Trump, we tried. Blame it on the courts. Blame it on the liberal judges. Blame it on the activist judges. Blame it on whoever you want to blame it on. Just don't blame it on us. Blame it on the NFL Players Association. Don't blame it on us. Blame it on this guy. Don't blame it on us. We did everything we could. That's where this is going. I don't know. It took me a little while to get there, but I think that's where we are. And I think that's where it's going. That's my prediction. Right or wrong, that's my prediction about where it's going. Here's my next prediction. We're going to hear from Josh McCown. And then it's time for the awards, the real awards, not the kind of Seinfeld-ish awards that we'll do tomorrow. Tuesday's awards for week five coming up after we have this conversation with Jets quarterback Josh McCown. It's PFT Live, NBC Sports Radio, NBCSN. As expected, there is an 0-5 team in New York, but it's not the Jets. The Jets 3-2, and and the man leading the way offensively, quarterback Josh McCown, joins us now. Josh, welcome back to the program. How are you, pal? I'm doing great. How you doing, Mike? I- I'm doing great. How surprised are you about how the first five games have gone? Well, I, I, 
I think for us inside the inside the building, it's it's not surprising. I mean, we began to work back in and you know April and May, uh, you know, putting the team together and, and working together and building our team and and uh, and with a goal in mind. And obviously, there's a narrative outside the building that's going on. But uh, but when you come to work, you don't really subscribe to that. You you, you are with your brothers in the locker room. You're you're going to go after this goal. So that's been our focus. And uh, and so when you when you do find success, I don't think there's you know for us there's anything surprising about it. It's the way we work. It's what we were expecting to happen. And so uh, you know for us, it's just continuing to stay in that mindset and not get caught uh, you know with anything outside the building. Not get caught up in any any of the you know, the hoopla or anything like that, but just um, just to continue to focus and, and improve what we're doing and get better. There have been accounts, though, that that narrative has provided motivation for the team. How much does the team rally around changing the perceptions and proving the people wrong who were pushing the narrative that the Jets just weren't going to be any good this year? Right, and I, and I understand that, and I think it's obviously disingenuous to say that, you know, in this day and age of social media that, we, or, you know, we just block it all out and nobody sees it. You do your best to do so, and uh, and you hope more than anything. I think when you're building a, a sustainable uh, franchise and, and a sustainable you know team, uh, that you you don't have just external motivators that get you going. That you have people that are self starters. So, but you know, but at the end of the day, there are things that, like I said, you can't help but hear and see. And uh, and if it and if you can use those to draw your focus to what's you know what's really important then then I don't think it's a bad thing as long as it's not the sole thing that motivates you and I think uh coach Bowles has done a good job of that of you know whether it's external things or or our own you know goals and things that we're chasing it's you know our focus is you know our our team and how we can build it and how we can be better and and to not just be motivated by outside challenges but just how good we think we can be together and and that's the that's the key What's been his primary message to the team through the first five weeks? Just that, just just one team, you know, one goal, and to be to be to get better every week, um, and to to keep improving. Uh, you know, we we detail out everything we do every day as far as you know. We, there's a there's a huge level of accountability as far as you know how we practice, the review of practice. Uh, you know, there's a team accountability standpoint. Where you know it's you know we understand the mistakes that guys are making in practice on both sides of the ball where we need to improve. So I think when you go out there every day to work, you know that you know you're going to be called out if you're not if you're not on top of it. And Coach Bowles is going to hold you accountable for that. And and what's cool is what begins to take place is that we don't have to wait for him to hold us accountable. That you know it's happening you know from player to player. And I think that's that's powerful. And that's when um, that's when you know you can start gaining ground and. Uh, and so those moments are taking place and, and it, you know, hopefully it happens more often. But, uh, but I think that's the key is that message of accountability that he's, been, that he's been preaching to us the first five weeks. I think that's what's allowed us to have some success. You mentioned the narrative from outside the building and much of that narrative, Josh, flowed from the reality that the front office, the organization was dropping key players as late as June when linebacker David Harris was let go, and there was a sense that caused some issues, and then Sheldon Richardson got traded during the preseason. What, what's the practical impact of that on the locker room when guys are just being shed one after another, and how do you work through that and get everybody on the same page? Well, look, we're, we're human beings, and these guys, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get to be around David Harris, but for, what, eight weeks, six weeks of the offseason program, the day he left, was a somber day around here the day he was let go because 
because of the type of player he was, because uh, for this organization, because of the type of man he is, um, those are, those are big blows in the locker room. But at the same time, it also opens up opportunities for other young players to step up. You know, uh, within some of those offseason moves, we acquired Demario Davis, who's playing at a high level right now uh, in the in the Sheldon Richardson trade. You know, we we gained Jermaine Curse uh, after losing Quincy Newman, so we we added a veteran receiver that we needed desperately, and Jermaine's played well for us. So I don't look at it as just shedding. I think I think we were it was more of making moves to to better our team. And sometimes those moves are hard. Sometimes they're hard on the locker room, especially with a player like David Harris. But at the end of the day, you trust that the people at the top are trying to do whatever it takes to improve the roster and help you uh, have a chance to win. And and uh, and so after these five weeks, I think it's reflected that, and hopefully we can continue to improve. And you mentioned Jermaine Curse, Josh, and it's been my experience observing the NFL that anytime you bring in a skill position player or receiver while the train's already moving, it's kind of like trying to change a tire on a on a moving car. But he stepped up as top receiver in every metric. What's been the biggest reason why he has clicked so quickly with you? Oh, he's a pro's pro. I mean, he's, uh, you know, I think obviously the way they built that program out there in Seattle, um, there's there's a there's a huge love for the game. He's been around a lot of success early on, and he's a football junkie. He came in from day one and was just like, man, let's let's sit down, let's watch tape, let's. Uh, and we were on the same page as far as seeing coverages and different things and what you know how he was going to read something and so on and so forth. And uh, we knew we had to do that. You know, it was just extra time put in because we needed to gain ground because it was you know we're, this is week one. You know, there was no more preseason to to get ready. It was it was time to go and uh, and so. From that standpoint, I think it's the credit to him to being willing to put in the time. Jeremy Curley did the same thing when we added him. Uh, Robbie Harris moving from X to Z, you know, had to kind of do the same thing. And so uh, it was, it's been an interesting, you know, kind of extended preseason for us the first few weeks because we were getting to know one another and, and we're still growing. But, uh, but Jermaine kind of led the way in that, his acquisition and the way that he approached it. And uh, he was, you know, certainly the time he put in gave us an edge. One of the realities, Josh, with all of the veterans who have left the Jets, leadership needs to come from somewhere. Who, who has emerged so far as the leaders on this team? Well, it's several. I, I, I really point to, uh, you know, defensively, I look at Demario Davis as a guy who's, who's emerged and stepped forward. I think our young players are really stepping forward. Jamal Adams is a heck of a presence. Marcus May also. Uh, and then, you know, along the line, uh, you know, Leo is, is, you know, he's playing at a high level, and, and, and he's a great voice. I mean, we got a good group over there. Mo Wilkerson, same thing. And uh, and so when those guys speak up, we listen. On the offensive side, Brian Winters, uh, like I said, Jermaine Curse. Uh, these guys uh, are, you know, guys, especially winners who have been here, um, and, and Bilal Powell, who's been here and, and seen how they wanted to go, Matt Forte. Uh, those, you know, there's still a, a good group of veteran guys here that understand the direction we need to take this thing. And, and, uh, and like I said, when we lost some of those guys and the decision was not to bring some of those guys back, it, it allowed some of these other guys to step up. Maybe Bilal Powell, who, who maybe not had had as strong a voice before, and now he's stepping up. So it's really encouraging all these different guys um, because uh, it's fun to see people step into that role, maybe out of their comfort zone, but become, you know, become uh, more of a leader-type guy and, uh, and really pull this team along. You talked earlier, Josh, about focusing on things inside the building, but you've got a fan base. The fan base maybe was skeptical at best going into the season. What, what have you noticed? What have you perceived about any changes in attitude from the fans toward this team as it's won three out of the first five games? 
Well, all I can tell you is just the home game experience, and those have been have been good so far as 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 far as the support. Uh, and you know, it seems like they're into it, and we look forward to them coming out to that life this weekend, and, and you know, a huge game against the Patriots, and you know, division game, and all that. So, uh, it's been fun. Uh, you know, these Jet fans are awesome. They're passionate, uh, and um, you know, for them when they show up, when they're loud on third down, when the other team's on on offense, that that's a huge uh, asset and benefit for us. So, uh, hope hopefully they're you know encouraged and excited excited about the start. And, you know, we will continue to, to work to, to maintain uh, this level of play and, and uh, give them something to cheer for. I know it's still early in the week as you prepare for the New England Patriots, but how much time have you spent studying a defense that, that has not been quite the same as Patriots defenses in past years? Well, uh, you know, yesterday and today, and, and the work continues um, for the rest of the day, but uh, that I'll, I'll be looking at them. Um, but what you know about this group is that they're a well-coached group, and, and regardless of if you know the perceived struggles or whatever, they'll be ready to play. Um, Matt Patricia's a heck of a coach. Bill Belichick's a heck of a coach. These these, these guys, um, they'll have their defense ready to go and ready to play. So, and you know, unique to what they do is they understand, uh, you know, game planning probably as good as anybody in the league uh, as far as attacking, you know, what you do best and so on. So, um, we know we'll have our hands full. And, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll get studied up, get the game plan, and, and, um, and hopefully put together a good week of work. Uh, but, uh, but it's, a, it's, you know, for them, um, you, never, you never can take these guys lightly because they're, they're uh, you know, they're a championship organization. They've been, you know, they've been at the top for a long time. And, uh, and so um, you expect that whatever, like I said, whatever perceived problems, they're going to have them fixed and, and they're going to be ready to go. And, and you can you know, obviously never count out. Uh, the guy on the other side of the ball uh, because he can he can go in there and, and put up points and, and move the football. So we're going to have to be at our best. And, and you mentioned David Harris earlier. He'd been with the Jets for so long, now with the Patriots. Nuts and bolts, practical matter. How much time how, do you factor what David Harris knows about your offense into getting ready for this game? What kind of changes do you have to make given that he's been there, he was there for the entire offseason program? Right, that's a great question. You know, I think for us though, because we, we're so different now, just from a personnel standpoint, that uh, and, and you know we were still learning our offense back then. So I don't know how much uh, you know. Dave's a sharp player, so so he may have a, a you know a whole book on us. But uh, but um, but I don't know how much he would be on top of you know what we were doing back then um, to to that degree. Just because a lot of times I always say this, you know. You, you kind of run a certain group of plays, especially in a startup year like we are with an offense. You, you kind of learn your playbook in the offseason, but, but who you become in the season is a lot different uh, because this is a personnel-driven league. And so um, so really and truly, in, in, in our case, when we've changed as much as we have uh, from the 53 to now um, – I think I think it you know it'd be hard for him to kind of have a be honest because because we're you know we're just a different team and and uh, and we got different personnel but you never know uh, we don't discount it and Dave's a heck of a player and it'd be fun to to uh, to match up against him. I get the feeling Josh McCown has a book on David Harris. Maybe a little. <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> a we, chapter. You know that's the, that's the fun <laughs> thing about going against each other is uh, is you know you 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 understand you know each other's tendencies and. The main thing is, you know, what I enjoy more than anything is a guy that you respect, you know, not only as a player, but as a man. You go out there and compete and, and play at your highest level and, and give it all you got and go against each other and bring out the best in one another. That'll be fun. 
Hey, Josh, it's been great to see it so far. Congratulations on your success and your career, and keep it up. We look forward to talking to you soon, and all the best this weekend and beyond. Okay, thanks, Mike. All right, awards time now, week five. I've got six or seven of them. We'll start with the low-hanging fruit, the obvious offensive player of the week. And this week, you could probably give it to him every week, but this is only the second week we've done it. He didn't get it last week. He gets it this week. Chiefs quarterback Alex Smith in his 13th season with his replacement standing there, arms crossed during every game, watching and waiting and ready to go after Patrick Mahomes got to see what the guy taking two picks after him did on Sunday night. Deshaun Watson, five touchdown passes, no interceptions, and a losing effort. And it was a losing effort in large part because of what Alex Smith continues to do. 29 for 37, 324 yards, three touchdowns against the Texans in that victory. The final score wasn't as close as the game was. No, wait. The final score was closer than the game really was. That's it. And Alex Smith getting it done week in and week out. MVP consideration, definite. So far this year, 11 touchdown passes, zero interceptions, no fumbles. 76.6 completion percentage. That is a career high for him. Passer rating of 125.8 through five games. That is impressive. And he also has a rushing touchdown. So he's got 12 total touchdowns for the year. 1,391 passing yards. He is on pace to have a career season 13 years into his career. He is the offensive player of the week. And I know that it's called a good problem to have. But let me tell you, if this team keeps doing what it's doing and it gets to the Super Bowl, now look, that's something no Chiefs team has done since Super Bowl four, And they haven't even been back to the AFC championship game since Joe Montana was the quarterback. They get to the Super Bowl this year. What do you do next year? Oh, that's a good problem to have. No, no, it's not. It's not a good problem to have. Not at all. Because then you got to make a decision. And what if you make the wrong decision? You trade Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes doesn't have it. Think of all the extra pressure it puts on Mahomes. Everything that will be said in the offseason if Smith takes the Chiefs to the Super Bowl and they dump him. So they'd probably just keep him. You keep Mahomes on the sidelines. You, you hold his rights. And you just tread water and you wait for the opportunity to move from Smith to Mahomes. Surely Smith isn't going to win two Super Bowls in a row or get to two Super Bowls in a row. And if he does, good problem to have. And so on and so forth. But at some point in the next four years, Alex Smith will be done. The only question is, will they win a Super Bowl this year or get there? And then if they do, will they get there or win it next year? And when will Mahomes play? Defensive player of the week. And this one to me, I don't want to get caught up in stats. I like significance. I like impact. And there was no impact greater by any defensive player than what we saw Monday night from Viking safety Harrison Smith, who seemed to bait Mitchell Trubisky, the Bears rookie quarterback, into throwing the ball at a time when Smith was ready to pop up and grab it. It was almost a Troy Polamalu type of play. Remember how he used to be? He used to be around, and you never knew where he was going to pop up. Smith made a very athletic play. He was in position to cover the receiver, and he just popped up, and he caught the ball like the back of the ball. Impressive for a defensive player. And it won the game for the Vikings. You know, we were kind of in a mode there where which offense is really going to be good enough to step up and win this game? And the answer was neither. It required a defensive play to turn the game, and that's what delivered the victory for the Vikings. So for that, and that only, 
I don't care how many sacks you have. I don't care how many fumbles you recover, how many interceptions you have, big hits. If you step up with the game on the line and you deliver victory, not just help avoid a defeat with an interception in the end zone when the other team is trailing by four points, when you step up in a tie game and deliver the interception that results in victory, you're the defensive player of the week. So Harrison Smith, congratulations, although there is nothing other than satisfaction that goes with this award. Coach of the week. And I like to give the assistant coaches some love. They're the ones who toil. Well, I don't know. I don't know that toil is the right word. Put your head down is not something you want to hear in reference to an NFL assistant coach anymore after what we saw on video Sunday night from former Dolphins offensive line coach Chris Forrester. But Todd Wash, who remained as defensive coordinator of the Jaguars after Doug Marone became head coach, he put together a masterful defensive game plan that left the Steelers stymied. It left the Steelers confused. It left guys like tight end Jesse James flat out saying, we got outcoached. Not in those terms, but pretty damn close. They came up with a plan, the perfect plan to get the Steelers to play right into it. 55 passes, 15 rushing attempts from Le'Veon Bell, 55 passes from Ben Roethlisberger, and a 30-9 win by the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, Todd Wash, congratulations. In a year when there will be major emphasis on offensive coaches when it comes to figuring out head coaching candidates for next year, at least Todd Wash should get some consideration for an interview, given what he did for the Jaguars week five against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Rookie of the week from that same game. Hate to do it, but I got no choice from that same game. Leonard Fournette, 181 rushing yards. The 90-yard dagger where he outran the secondary. There aren't many running backs that will outrun a secondary, that will get separation from a secondary. That doesn't happen often. So we got a power and speed guy. And if he stays healthy, oh boy, what the Jaguars have found for themselves. They may be one of the only teams that passed on Deshaun Watson that can be justified in passing on Deshaun Watson. And, and I almost gave it to Deshaun Watson again. Sorry, Deshaun. Yeah, you're going to get it like every other week. You're going to have a full trophy case full of nothing since there is no trophy. 466 rushing yards for Leonard Fournette in five games and 128 receiving. We've heard so much about Kareem Hunt, but Leonard Fournette was the guy. Heinz Field, tough place to play, tough place to win. And, and, even more. Even more. And this was a play that was considered for the next award I'm going to be giving out, but it didn't win it because I knew I could talk about it here. There's a play where Frenetta is running, and he does kind of like the Mr. T, Clubber Lang, come on. with While he's running, he gestures to Mike Mitchell, the Steelers' safety, come on, bring it, while he's running. It was great. It happened so fast, it's like, wait a minute, is that what I just saw? Oh, it was great. Leonard Frenette, if he can stay healthy, I mean, we're back to where we were three years ago when he exploded on the scene at LSU and said, this guy's going to be special, and then eh, not so special his next two years. Had a hard time living up to that bar, almost like a Jadavian Clowney, where he made too big of a splash too soon. Now, man. And some would say, boy, if he played for any team but the Jaguars, he'd be a superstar. Well, you know what? He may be in the process of helping the Jaguars become a superstar type of a team. If they can continue to play in the even weeks like they play in the odd weeks. All right. Play of the week. 
Play of the week and game of the week. I'm going to combine those. The game of the week, Packers-Cowboys, without question. I love it when the final score has both teams in the 30s. I love that. It has that feel of a big-time college game that delivers. 35-31, I love it. 30-27, to even though one team isn't in the 30s. You get my point. 41-38, that, that range. I don't like it when it's too high. When both teams are in the 40s, nah, too much. One team in the 30s, but the other team not far away, not more than a score away either way. So now I've revised my range here. That's the kind of game I like. That's a special, compelling game. And the way the Packers drove down the field, the way Aaron Rodgers played. Oh, Florio, you hate Aaron Rodgers. I don't hate Aaron Rodgers. I think he's one of the best quarterbacks that's ever played. Now, is he sensitive? Yes. Is there something wrong in Green Bay as to why they haven't won another Super Bowl since 2010? Yes. But I can't deny what I saw. His run, where he kind of, it wasn't an intentional high step. He was just getting away, and he had a little exuberance, and he threw a shoulder at the end. Ordinarily, I'd say, don't throw a shoulder because you're going to get yourself injured. Man, that was that was powerful. That was a statement. That was a, we're not playing for overtime, Cowboys, as we trail by three. We're going for the win. And then to have the faith in Devontae Adams, who had been in the hospital 10 days earlier, throw the pass to him again after it was incomplete the first time for the win. That was great. Play of the week came... Not during that final drive, not during any other point of the game. The play of the week, and I, and I say this because I feel like this completely was overlooked. I feel like Joe Buck and Troy Aikman were packing up their stuff and walking out of the booth. I feel like the players were just on their way to the locker room and they shut down. The Stanford band attempt by the Cowboys came so close, so close to busting. And it featured roughly half the guys on the field quitting. I'm going to pull up the all 22, and I'm going to count the number of guys who whose body language suggests they quit on the play when Jason Witten threw a lateral that hit the ground and everyone acted like it was an incomplete pass. It wasn't an incomplete pass. It's a fumble. It's a live ball. So Nick Perry of the Packers picks it up and he's holding it in his hand. Travis Frederick says, yoink, I'll take that. And he takes off running with it like no one can see him. The problem is they saw him and they hit him. And he made an awkward pitch of the ball instead of realizing that instead of awkwardly pitching it over his left shoulder, he had Dak Prescott over his right shoulder. And that's the direction he should have gone. But that, that one of the most exciting non-scoring plays, one of the most exciting irrelevant plays I've ever seen. And oh, oh no, Mike McCarthy's walking out onto the field as the play's ending. I thought there was a rule against that. And, and also there's a question as to whether or not Ezekiel Elliott threw a forward pass to Dak Prescott in what supposedly was a lateral. I've watched that at least a dozen times. I think there is not clear and obvious evidence that would have overturned that. That's my opinion. Boy, but that would have been something. Al Riveron would have had a hell of a time trying to decipher that one. And that's a moment where if you're the referee, you're glad that you no longer have to make the decision in the stadium of the team that has the game riding on the outcome of that decision. But boy, that, that was, that was, and, and it was one of those moments where I felt like I was losing my mind because nobody seemed to recognize the significance of what we had just witnessed. So that that's play of the week, even though it was ultimately meaningless, it was so close to being very meaningful. You got to give it the credit that it deserves. And then finally the win of the week, Panthers go to Detroit and beat the lions after the ridiculous unforced error from Cam Newton and, and here's, and, and I, I, I don't know why I gravitated toward this outcome. 
I did my tentative picks last Wednesday before the Cam Newton stuff hit the fan. And I had Panthers 27, Lions 24. And after Cam Newton said what he said, and I thought about how it's potentially going to affect him, I flipped the outcome like an idiot. Kudos to Cam Newton for finding a way to stay focused. Kudos to the Panthers for keeping him focused, for not letting it become a distraction. Regardless of how you feel about what he said, and I thought it was a horribly sexist remark, the only mistake he made was to mistakenly let us know how he really feels. I, the apology was too wrong. There were portions of it that I didn't like. The, if you're someone who was offended by what I said, I apologize. No, no, don't, don't, don't condition. I hate that. I feel like what he did was he, he rambled through a lot of things that he's heard from other apologies. So when in Rome, that attitude, no, just speak from your heart. And, and the post-game comments, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, but I don't care. I do care. But I'm trying to keep this on football. He created a distraction for himself. He created a disruption for himself, and he played so well under circumstances where it would have been very easy to crumble and to go into Ford Field and win over the Lions, who were 3-1 and one going into the game. That was an impressive display for the Panthers, who now Thursday night host the 4-1 and one Eagles. All of a sudden, one of the best games of the week. Hey, Thursday Night Football, you've been getting some good games. No complaints from CBS. We'll see if the good games hold when NBC takes over the package coming up in a few weeks. All right, coming up tomorrow, another PFT PM podcast, PFT Live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Radio. The final two hours, simulcast on NBCSN. And around the clock, as always, at profootballtalk.com. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. We'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.